Welcome to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. In this podcast, we discuss, educate and talk about industry news and hot topics, company reviews and live interviews with mining professionals and leading figures in the mining industry. Introducing your host, Rob Tyson, founder and director of Mining International. With a career covering nearly two decades, Mining International partners with new and junior miners and larger predominant players in the market. With no further ado, here is your host, Rob Tyson. Hi, mining community. Welcome back to another episode of the Dig Deep, the Mining Podcast. And today I've got Kurt Budge, who's the Chief Executive Officer and Director at Beowulf Mining, who are a London and Stockholm listed junior exploration and development company. Um, predominantly focused on the Nordic area, but also with an interest in exploration in Kosovo and have exposure to iron ore, graphite, base and precious metals. Um, Kurt's background is a mixture of mining and investments and was keen to hear more about his journey, um, lessons he has learned and exciting things that um, Beowulf are doing. So I'd like to welcome Kurt. How are you doing, Kurt? I'm very good, Rob. Thank you very much. No worries. Appreciate your time, uh, taking the time to uh, do this podcast. So um, as we always start these, these podcasts off, if you can give us a, a background uh, about yourself, tell, tell the audience a little bit about your, um, your career. So probably from when you graduated um, up until um, pr- sort of, I suppose, present day. And then I've got some questions to ask you around Beowulf. Um, and I know obviously you're doing some exciting things. So um, I hand it over to you. Thanks. So I, uh, I graduated in 1992 from the Royal School of Mines with a mining engineering degree, master's in mining engineering, when they did have a mining engineering program. Um, prior to that, I actually grew up in the, the coal industry because my father was an open cast coal contractor to British coal. So I'd spent a lot of time of my youth uh, touring around open cast coal sites across the country. I, I didn't go straight into the mining industry. I joined a venture capital company in the early 90s, Schroeder Ventures. So I did a year and a half or almost two years actually working in, in venture capital and private equity. But then the law of mining, because it's quite a vocational subject, uh, I went back into the industry just pre-privatization of the coal industry in the UK and joined RJB Mining and spent seven and a half years in open cast coal all in operations and permitting new mines. Did you get? Unless, I was going to say, did you get persuaded by your um, father to sort of get get down the pit? So uh, I never worked underground, although I spent through my career I've been underground a lot. Yeah. But um, there was some. Uh, it was a bit of both. I think there was an encouragement. Um, venture capital wasn't really for me uh, in the early nineties. I always think back and wonder how much money I could have made had I stuck with it. But um, I think mining is in mining was definitely in the blood, and the coal industry was in the blood. And so going back in just pre-privatization, which was quite an exciting period, especially for RJB Mining because it was acquiring all the English regions of the coal industry. Uh, that was the main catalyst for joining. Um, it was a period of significant growth. Yeah, and so I spent seven and a half years in the coal industry and then uh, came back down to London to do my MBA at London Business School. The prime reason being to get out of the mining industry because, you know, during that period when I had been in, in coal, um, 
on a European level, a lot of politics involved in energy markets, a lot of pressure on coal, uh, the major power generators in the UK all switching to gas. So pressure on coal prices, uh, imports of coal, making uh, UK coal production less uh, competitive. And, uh, you know, it's tough working in an industry that is in a steady decline. So I, I went to London Business School for two years, but as I was graduating, um, I got an interview with Rio Tinto. So I joined Rio Tinto in 2004, their business evaluation department. And really it was a case of a round peg in a round hole. I think my father-in-law at the time was quite keen for me to, uh, to get a real job after spending two years out of the, the, the workforce and uh, to be able to look after his daughter um, in, the, in the manner which she would, should be accustomed to. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it was quite an exciting opportunity to join Rio Tinto at that time. Uh, clearly, we were in, a, in those early days, 2004, 5, 6, um, a period of commodity prices. You know, the strap line was stronger for longer. Rio Tinto was generating a lot of cash. Um, I was working in a team that was, I was looking at both aluminium and copper projects. Um, stage, the, every project was stage gated. So you would go from order of magnitude to pre-feasibility to feasibility. And at every stage, you would come back to the investment committee of Rio Tinto, who the team that I worked for advising to basically assess the financial and strategic opportunity of, of the business case that was being presented by a business unit uh, for a particular project. And if it was MPV positive, it was getting fully funded. Uh, and so, you know, I was with Rio Tinto for five years, saw a lot of change, uh, change in CEO, change in leadership, change in appetite for risk. Um, the Alcan transaction, which was uh, highly leveraged. And then we went into the global financial crisis in 2008. And uh, that put a lot of stress on the Rio Tinto as it did on other mining companies, a highly leveraged balance sheet. So the last 18 months with Rio Tinto, I was on divestments. And I guess through that period, I thought, I guess I'd seen everything I wanted to see in a major and uh, was ready for a change. So uh, took the leap and went and joined a private equity firm in Switzerland um, in early 2010 called Parler Investments. And uh, that was really going from big blue chip major to effectively the dark side, you know, private equity, operating the junior space, incredible flexibility and uh, speed of action. Um, the only problem was my wife and kids didn't come to Switzerland with me. So I spent a very unhappy 18 months going backwards and forwards. Um, and while on the personal front, it was quite challenging, uh, career-wise, it really opened my eyes to a whole new um, space in, in the mining uh, sector. I came back in 2011, and then 2011 to prior to joining Beowulf was very much a number of different roles in the junior space as a mining analyst, working in other sort of uh, mid-tier mining companies listed on AIM. So I guess you could say prior to joining Beowulf, I had worn many hats in the industry. And when I joined Beowulf in 2014, I felt, you know, quite comfortable that all my experience had built me up to the role that I was taking on, which as it turned out was initially as a non-executive director for a month and then becoming chief executive in October, 2014.
yeah into the hot seat so how did you find that transition for and i suppose working for uk coal which was obviously a, a, a national company here in in the uk you were going into a declining market the mine the obviously mining industry was declining then then going to this big giant mining animal of rio tinto and then obviously going back into uh the like the investment side obviously you work for a reasonably big company then a huge great company then a small company how did you sort of find that transition and sort of what challenges did you face along that way um and what things did you have to really quickly learn from from working say for a, a big rio tinto then working for a lot smaller company I think that uh, each stage you're learning different skill sets. So very much when I was in the coal industry, it was all about operations. It was about man management. It was about dealing with communities and uh, regulators. So both from an operations standpoint, dealing with the environment agency here in the UK, dealing with the planning authorities, um, and then also when permitting new mines and, and dealing with communities that literally were on the other side of the fence line from the site. So it's a very hands-on jack-of-all-trades role, as I would describe it. Um, Then going into Rio Tinto, you're really upping the game. The the team I was working for were dealing with the fourth floor in St. James's Square, which was all the executives. So I was right at the top of a larger corporation that was making all the decisions. Um, So we were doing literally that financial analysis of the the major capital projects that were taking place uh, within the company. And then also looking at really interesting things about strategic work. I, I did sort of a country entry strategy into India, which was fascinating at the time. So I was then putting on the corporate hat, so to speak, rather than the at the coalface, literally operations. Um, then going into private equity, it was very much a case of uh, speed of decision-making, lack of, lack of bureaucracy, and uh, great flexibility and unconstrained thinking. Um, so you're allowed to be quite creative, whereas in a major, you're definitely not allowed to be creative. Um, you know, over time, uh, certain ways of working have been developed. Um, and then now I'm in, in, in Beowulf, I, it, it's felt very comfortable. I mean, one of the earliest things that I learned in venture capital um, from from one of my first bosses was in a turnaround situation, uh, there's a need for necessary violence. uh, And and sometimes you've just got to take action to preserve cash. I mean, that's the fundamental thing. Um, And so when I came into Beowulf, things were not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, Um, but it meant you had to take action very early on. To, to, to maintain the business from a cash perspective and also um, making sure that from a, you know operations standpoint, we were all set up to, to be able to survive. And, and so I think all the bits and pieces of my career have taught me to be quite resilient. Um, not every experience is a positive experience, but uh, I think all of us in this industry, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Yeah. Um, Maybe we're fooling ourselves, but that's that's kind of the way I live. Yeah, and obviously you work for those all those types of companies, and they, as you mentioned, you have you learn different skill sets. Would you say that across those three or four companies that you worked uh, in, you built up 
a broad range of broad range of skill sets that has sort of now combined come together for where uh, in terms of obviously where you are now and how successful you're you're becoming would you say you've got a broad range of all these skills because of the the positions that you've been in and the companies that you've worked for i think very much so i think it's um for for my career it's about building blocks and uh i've definitely covered off you know i've put building blocks in place to give me that foundation mm. uh, and clearly the longer in the industry the more experience you gain uh so i feel very comfortable in the role that i'm being asked to do um as ceo of beowulf yeah and it's the same with the, the company is that you know any junior relies on that first project to create the foundation of the company and then over time you try and layer on top of that you want to see that project move down the development pipeline um and then you add other projects so that's when you build your your capability, build your scale, uh, and build your opportunity to create shareholder, shareholder value. Yeah. Um, so I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about your time at uh, Bay Wolf. Um, you've obviously been there for six years now. Um, so I wonder if you can tell us uh, a little bit about your journey, how you turn things around, um, around financing and uh, diversification. Yeah, so I joined Beowulf, like I say, as a non-executive director in September 2014. And then a month later, I became chief executive. And in that 2014-2015 period, um, we, myself and Bevan Metcalf, who joined um, as a fellow non-executive director, you know, the, the company had some challenges. Um, I think... The previous management team had upset stakeholders in Sweden where our Calic project, our Calic Iron Ore project is located. Uh, and so relationships have to be repaired. The reputation of the company had to be rebuilt. Uh, from a financial standpoint, you know, there were two financings done in 2013 and 14, which weren't necessarily ideal for the company going forward. So we had to, to find a solution there. And as well as finding a solution there, we had to raise capital going into 2015. So it was uh, fast and furious. Again, you know, action needed to be taken. Uh, and it's great to have that. You know, there's an energy level that comes from with the, when you've got a situation which requires action. Uh, and we got through that to-do list. And um, I think that comes from being a mining engineer as well. You know, in my career, uh, often or not, it's obstacle or challenge or problem after another that just needs solving solutions need to be found. Um, so we got through that, I raised some money at the beginning of 2015, uh, 350 grand, which took four months to raise, uh, which was very painful. Um, and then we raised some money later that year, but that first year in Beowulf was really, um, we made a big step forward with this Calac project, which the company is most well known for. Um, the middle of the year, we got a positive statement from a re the regional government around the economic case for the project. And the mining inspector at Sweden recommended that the concession be awarded for that project. So great, great. I thought, you know, this is all going really, really well. Um, since then with Calac and shareholders of Beowulf um, will have heard me say this many times, there have been twists and turns in that project's uh, path. And for the last three years, the government has held on to our application. Um, 
and not made any decision, which is incredibly frustrating. And in, in my sort of uh, view is, is totally political. Um, we've never been a company to sit on our hands. So uh, again, the variety of experience that I've had in my, in my career, I've looked at how we could develop Beowulf. And so in early 2016, we made an acquisition of a, a graphite exploration company in Finland. Um, that was not an expensive deal for us. It demonstrated that we could transact. Uh, we could put a deal together and make it happen. It built the team within Beowulf. So it brought our, on board an exploration manager who was then able to run our exploration programs. And uh, it, that business has now turned out to be you know, nicely positioned because Finland wants to develop a battery sector, battery manufacturing sector. And uh, the Finnish government through uh, the Finnish Minerals Group, which is a sort of uh, state mining company, uh, which has you know various investments in the old Talvavara nickel assets, uh, Sokomo silver and Kelebo lithium. They've got investments on the cathode side of a battery. They don't have any investments on the anode side of a battery where we're positioned. But we've, we've found ourselves in, in sort of somewhat of a unique position as a potential future supply of uh, natural flake graphite. And we're also uh, beneficiaries of uh, state funding through one of the government agencies, Business Finland, who are helping us develop uh, capabilities to move downstream. Um, with graphite, we've never just been interested in producing us concentrate and selling it at mine gate. We want to see credibly how many steps down the chain, the value chain, we can move to produce those value added products. And so we've been able to do that with Business Finland money um, building our knowledge and our capability. So graphite is a, an interesting business in Finland. And then in 2018, we, we moved into Kosovo with investment in Vardar Minerals. And, uh, I guess, you know, up until that point, there was very much a strong, uh, Nordic focus in the company, but, you know, we have come across challenges in, in the Nordic region. Um, it takes a long time to get a mining project permitted. Um, in Finland, they talk of 10 years. In Sweden, no greenfield uh, exploitation, exploitation concession has been granted in 12 years. So you've got to ask yourself if, if that's the case, um, where am I better putting my exploration um, Swedish kronos, sec or dollars, you know? Yeah. And we were, uh, we were offered the opportunity to invest in Kosovo and Vardar Minerals. I knew uh, one of the founders. We listened to the exploration hypothesis that they presented. It was very exciting. And, uh, you know, on the first visit, due diligence visit to Kosovo, uh, had dinner that night with the, one of the economic advisor to the prime minister who said, you know, what can we make, uh, how can we make Kosovo uh, you know, attractive for you to come and invest, you know, demonstrating that they wanted to work with business. Um, they want investment to come into the country. They want to grow. Um, in, in Sweden, it took me four and a half years to get an interaction face to face with the government. So chalk and cheese different. Mm. And since 2018, um, you know, initially it was completion of field work programs in 2018 with Vodar. 
then last year was drilling, lots of geophysics. Um, and then this year, you know, constrained somewhat by COVID-19, but the plan is to, for Vardar to go ahead with geophysics and then hopefully more drilling yeah. later this year. Um, I've got a couple of questions on, on what you've just said. Um, you mentioned, obviously, initially when you joined, uh, you had to repair a lot of relationships. Um, and I imagine people listening to this may have gone through that particular process, or if they haven't, they may do in the future. So how did you turn things around in terms of, obviously, the relationships? You said they were damaged. What kind of things did you do to turn around those relationships? Um, and secondly, being in those countries in Finland and Sweden where you seem to be doing so much but not getting anywhere and it's taking years and years and years, how comes you're still going in those countries and how comes you sort of haven't sort of shut the door and I suppose put your efforts into another jurisdiction? Yeah. So I think with uh, rebuilding relationships, when I, I was the new kid on the block when I joined Beowulf, and so every trip to Sweden, I didn't spend any time in Stockholm with central government. I was straight up to the north uh, in Lilio, meeting with the regional government, meeting with the mining inspector, and then going up to Jokmok in north of the Arctic Circle and meeting with the mayor and, and the key stakeholders in Jokmok. I'm a big believer in face-to-face. -face. Um, through COVID-19, we've had to rely on Zoom and, and, and other means to communicate. But actually pressing the flesh and, and looking into the whites of each other's eyes um, is the only way to really build true, true relationships. When you're permitting a project, and uh, especially in the case of Calac, without actually having an existing operation that you can point to and being and working on the ground, it becomes more challenging to form working relationships. Yeah, in my previous career in coal, I've in, I inherited mines where there might have been a situation where the relationships weren't so great. Um, but I could prove I, I built the relationships or rebuilt the relationships by delivering, acting, in accordance with what I was saying I was going to do. And when you deliver, then you build the trust. Now, in Yorkmok, there hasn't been that much activity on the ground with Kalak, but I kept going to Yorkmok, I kept visiting, I kept going to see the mayor, I kept explaining yeah, what it is we were doing. And, uh, and, and in Yorkmok, it took two years really to, to build that relationship with uh, the mayor of Yorkmok, who's become a great supporter with local entrepreneurs in Yomok who want to see um, economic activity in the locality. There's also a lot of support. Um, so even though I haven't been able to actually develop the project from a you know, breaking ground perspective, I think I've demonstrated my commitment and I've also been able to show evidence from my earlier career, you know, projects that I ran in the UK, you know, boots on the ground experience of mines that we took from start to finish, you know, examples of where we restored the site and it got environmental awards. There's not many people that actually associate environmental awards with digging holes in the ground, but we managed to do that in the UK. Um, so, you know, it's uh, somebody, a, a, a consultant could probably put this in some fancy slides and give you frameworks 
uh, as to how you go about building relationships, but I think it's very much down to your personality, uh, your engagement, your demonstration of commitment, and the delivering on your actions. Okay, yeah. Now, when, when it comes to uh, why we still committed to, to Sweden and Finland, um, and specifically the Calac project, the, the Calic project, we, we have done the work to be able to, to be granted a, uh, our next permit, the exploitation concession. We've done the work. So while I am as frustrated as any other shareholder, um, we cannot give up on it. We cannot walk away. That would not be the right outcome. And uh, as I've said before, I will, one way or another, I will get fair resolution um, on, our, on our application. Um, the irony around, say, Calic as, a, as an example is that the Swedish Geological Survey found the deposit in the 1940s. And in May this year, they actually, the, the latest SGU supported report came out um, talking about Calac. So it's been on the, and the SGU is part of the government of Sweden. So they've been studying Calac for 80 years. The mining inspector has been handing out exploration licenses. So one arm of government is quite happy for you to put money in the ground, develop a project, you know, define your resource. And, and Calac globally could be 250 million tons if you add in the exploration target we have um, to the current resource. And then also the application that we put in ourselves, um, which went in for the first time in 2013 and then there was a lot of supplementary studies as often happens. So it's been sitting on people's desks since 2014. Um, the law hasn't changed. Uh, we've provided more information than is typically required for this stage of permitting. But I came into the job and I said, well, tell me where the problems are. Tell me, tell me what I need to fix. Give me the list and I'll go away. I'll work my way through it. Cause that's, you kind of think that's how an efficient, uh, world works. Um, if I do that, get through that list, then all being, if I do the work, I should get the permit. Um, that's what I believed. What's proved to be the case is that you can do the work, but then authorities will just find a way of not granting the concession. And, and what I found most disappointing is a lack of engagement. And um, at the end of the day, you know, the mining industry does get treated a little bit differently because uh, we do have impacts uh, in the way that we, we develop open pit mines uh, or underground operations that bring waste to surface or, or whatever it is. Um, we have positive and negative impacts, uh, but overall for what society needs, we generate, um, we make a difference and we make a positive difference. Um, in Sweden, I think, you know, the, we, at the end of the day, we are a business and, and you raise capital, you come up with a, you create a business idea, you raise capital, you develop that idea, you create the opportunity for economic activity, job creation, you name it. And, uh, and even though you do all that work, um, it seems that it gets treated with a high degree of caution. The industry does. And, uh, you know, I've, I've always been impressed in, in my career, number one, how companies take health and safety very importantly. Um, my old man used to 
say to me, you never want to be the, the manager has to go to somebody's house and tell me that their husband or father has been killed at work. Um, and similarly, environmentally, we take our environmental responsibility very seriously. Um, you know, I remember working in the coal industry and focusing on uh, species mix for grass, hedges, and tree planting, uh, fencing specifications, you know, all these sorts of things, watercourses, creating water features, you know, drainage, all sorts of different things. Um, I don't think we get credit for the way we think about, uh, you know, sustainability. And then if I go to Sweden now, the innovation that's taking place in the country, um, this aspiration of uh, fossil-free uh, mining, not just uh, carbon neutral, but carbon negative operations that uh, can, you know, create a CO2 sink for, um, you know, emissions. There are some really exciting developments. And again, you can sit in an industry conference and be blown away by what's being discussed. But again, outside of that conference space, nobody really knows that this is the way we think and this is the way that we look at the world. Yeah. Do you think, and speaking about your application that you've put in, and like you said, it's been sitting on, sitting on their desk for six years, is it because they don't think mining, mining isn't necessarily a significant industry to them? Do you think things could change now because of this whole COVID situation where some industries could be dying? I.e., if you look at obviously like retail, for instance, so they're, they're, there's a whole industry or a particular part of that industry could be completely dying. There's probably going to be other industries that are going to be, whether they die or whether there's just a, a massive decrease in revenue output, et cetera. Could they then, they, could they then look at mining as another industry that could potentially grow? Obviously, if you look on a worldwide um, scale um, I believe the industry will start picking up it'd be picking up in certain sectors like for instance gold do you think the government will the government there do you think they could look at the mining differently and your application differently just because of what's happened worldwide I think there's there's been a discussion in Sweden specifically around um, the industrial base and uh, and also a fact of the COVID-19 situation is the mining industry has kept going. Mm. I think that there have been, there's been a spike in cases in the north of Sweden. Um, I think uh, LKB, the state iron ore company's operations may have been affected. Um, but if you listen to what the government says, the government does talk about the importance of the industry in terms of a national context. And I think that these base industries, these base industries are important. They're important from uh, maintaining a highly skilled workforce. They're, they're important because they've been around for a long time. In, in history, the mining industry of Sweden has generated a lot of Sweden's wealth. Um, LKB has been in operation since the late 1800s. You know, mining for metals in Sweden goes back hundreds of years so there's this uh long tradition of mining there's deep competence and uh and there's innovation 
And that innovation, you know, becomes transferable to other sectors. And, and the discussion that's taking place at the moment is very much around what metals do you need to affect a green transition? What metals do you need to affect uh, the ability to produce, you know, have electrified um, society and uh, be able to capture renewables in electric, um, in batteries? All of these uses and applications require metals. And, you know, one of the hot topics is around the circular economy. There is not enough metal in the circular economy to be able to be self-sustaining. You still need raw materials to come out of the ground, and that's not going to change for generations. So I think, uh, I think you're right. I think, the again, it comes back to resilience. Mining industry is resilient. The people that work in the mining industry are resilient. And, and th there will be a, a renewed focus to how these industries provide the foundation of economies. Um, obviously, you're working for a junior miner. What challenges do you see in the junior space around fundraising, um, resources, time, money, people, etc.? Um, and I know it's obviously been tough over the last few years. Do you, if you can obviously explain some of the challenges that you've had working in the junior space, and what you think may happen after COVID nineteen, where things may change um wonder if you can give us uh, your thoughts on that i think um when you're working for a large mining company it's quite a privileged environment you know it's it's cash generating lots of resources lots of human capital deep competence um when you go into the junior space the the number one thing is there isn't that much cash around and uh and fundraising has always been tough and uh as the ceo of the company there is nothing more unrewarding than raising uh equity finance um because you know there are groups of shareholders that think you've always sold equity too cheap and uh and so it's incredibly unrewarding but you can't live on fresh air um, you can't develop the business on fresh air we need capital to invest and keep stay in operation so Fundraising continues to be uh, challenging, and, and that's not really changed over the last five years. Um, we are benefited from having a listing in London and Stockholm, which gives us some flexibility on uh, opportunities to raise capital. After COVID-19, I would hope that you know, there's a recognition that the mining sector um, is, is an important part of uh, different economies around the world, and, uh, but it won't, it'll still come back to um, key things around, you know, who's your management? What assets do you have? Everybody wants to see an asset that's moving to eventual production and cash flow generation. So for Beowulf, the, the, the challenge that we've had is because we've been fixated on trying to get our flagship project across the line in terms of its next permit, that has uh, consumed a lot of management time and focus and then put a lid on us uh, being able to fulfill our ambitions about growing the company. Um, I guess when I came in in 2014, I made the statement that we, we upgraded the resource statement. We'd be looking for a strategic, strategic partner. We'd be doing a scoping study 
we've been moving it down the project development pipeline. That was the Alcalic project. And, uh, and then you get all these issues with permitting. Well, not issues, you just don't get movement um, with the authorities about when the decision, final decision is going to be taken. So that's uh, put a lid on us being able to fulfill our ambitions. Uh, and, and then that's had a knock-on effect on the share price performance, the amount of funding you can raise, how you can build out your team, and the opportunities that you can go after. Um, so we've always tried to live within our means. Uh, we've tightly run ship. Um, you know, we aren't flush with lots and lots of people. Um, so we try and look after shareholders' money as, as well as we can. And, uh, yeah, it'd be nice to be able to see beyond, uh, to be able to get resolution in Sweden on our Calic project, to be able to then sort of really set your stall out, uh, to, to sort of achieve on some of those ambitions that we still have to grow the company. I think we're, we're very, we're very well positioned. You know, we've got movement in all the areas of our business. So with our Calic project, you know, we've done the work to get the permit. With our Finnescandian resources business in Finland, we're nicely positioned in the battery space. And then we have an exciting exploration program in Kosovo, you know, with two licenses there and exposure to base metals and precious metals in a country where we seem to be able to get things done. Mm. So, um, no, it's even though it can be, it's incredibly frustrating at times because you don't have all the riches that you do when you're in a major, uh, it's 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 fast and furious and it's exciting and and you know it's 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 not a bad place to be yeah what what would you say the the key factors and successful factors working in the junior space and i know you've you've probably covered uh quite a few of them there what would you say the main success factors are working in the junior space i think management is always critical i forget the way people uh, describe it you can have a uh, a great resource and a bad management team or a bad resource and a good management team one way or the other but i think uh in, in the case of bailf it, it's very much a case of we on paper it might not look like we've achieved success because a lot of our shareholder base looks at our Calic project and says, well, you haven't got your permit. But I think what we have been able to do with the companies, but when I think about success with Beowulf or, or I think progress rather than success, because I'm as frustrated as anybody that we haven't got the permit for Calic. I think of a company that in the early part of 2015 was sub five million pounds in, the, in, in London, and there's now probably today around 27 million pounds. And that's uh, a fraction of where, where we've been when there's been an expectation that we were gonna get our permit for Calac. If I think about the diversification we've, we've been able to do, moving into graphite in Finland, moving into Kosovo, and now owning 42% of Vardar minerals. So we've spread the risk there. So we've got both the geographic exposure and the commodity exposure you still need this the key thing about being successful in junior space is you need one of your projects to move down the development pipeline to to keep doing the rigorous work which i learned from rio tinto go through those project development steps um 
it either gets bought by somebody bigger in the food chain or you put it into production yourself. I've, I've always been a boots on the ground guy. Um, I enjoy seeing operations. I grew up in operations. I like to see product, whether or not it be in a lorry going across the Weybridge exiting the site and going to a power station or whether or not it be being a ship being filled by iron ore. Um, these are, these are things that excite me. I, I want to see assets in production. Um, guess I'm a mining engineer at heart. Yeah. But, uh, fundamentally it's around, you know, management team delivering and, I would hope that you know shareholders in Bale see, see that we have delivered to to a good degree. Yeah. Um, how do you see the the outlook for the junior junior miners over the short to medium term? Um, and what challenges do you see? And I suppose talking about the overall junior space, what sort of challenges do you see them facing um, over over the next or coming years that they may have not faced previously? I think uh, it's never easy in the junior space. I think uh, if we go into an economic downturn, then that's going to put pressure on commodity prices and you end up in a situation where we've been before where in an economic downturn, then the taps get turned off for expiration, expiration finance. And uh, then that sort of sows the seeds for the next boom. Uh, the mining industry has been through a uh, number of these cycles over generations. So nothing really changes. Um, you may well get fallout because some, some companies won't get funded. I hope we're not one of them because I think we've done enough to try and create uh, a suite of interesting assets and business areas. But the access to capital remains, um, remains the key challenge. And uh, as long as you've got that, you can stay in business and you can keep developing your asset base. Um, I think, uh, you know, just touching on the Nordic region again, you need, uh, we need to operate in, a, in an environment where decisions get made in a timely manner. Uh, in Sweden specifically, the government talks of predictability and transparency. And investors need to see that in the jurisdictions where the, the companies that they're investing in are operating. Um, if they don't see that, then you do what we've done, which is you look for other countries where you can actually make things happen for the company and for investment investors' um, ownership. Um, so I think uh, people will be looking very closely at how effective jurisdictions operate in the terms, in the way that they permit uh, mines. I think, um, you know, you've, you've covered recently on your podcast, uh, ESG. I mean, I think, uh, one of your, uh, guests was talking about ESG has already always been here in certain forms. And, uh, we've talked about health and safety and environment and how the industry takes that very, very, um, seriously and, and rightly so. And I think, um, going forward, you know, companies that are demonstrating, uh, high high standard of operating in terms of environmental so, social and governance guidelines will stand out from the crowd and we want to be one of those companies um now we take our the way we work in a community we take our take that role very seriously 
We want to be seen to be being a responsible company. Um, doesn't matter what jurisdiction you work in and what standards the you know maybe in legislation. We want to work to the highest standard. We want to work in partnership with local communities such that everybody can benefit from the activity that we generate. And uh, you know that's an aspiration. I mean, I think one of the most exciting things about being in the mining industry is about being able to make a difference and uh, make a positive difference in society one way or another, whether or not it be employing people or producing minerals and metals that society needs or doing a good restoration job at the, when the mine has finally come to uh, completion. All those things uh, are really important to me. You know, I think the challenges for the junior sector will not change. They've always been there. They're here now and they'll be there in the future. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it remains challenging, but I'm yeah. still smiling. Yeah, you certainly are. Um, I've got a couple more questions. Um, so as a sort of conclusion, how is, um, what is Bay, Bay Wolves looking over the next few years in the sort of short to medium term over the next three to five years? What, what are you looking to do? What are you hoping hoping will happen um, just to give our audience a, um, sort of a, I, I suppose a little bit of a prediction as to how you think things will move forward. Well, I'm hoping the Swedish government makes the decision on our Calac permit and that we get the exploitation concession that we can continue to develop the Calac project. Um, again, you know, I said when I joined Beowulf in 2014 that we, all things being equal, we are four to five years away from uh, production. We're still four to five years away from production. So that remains an ambition. There'll be nothing uh, more satisfying um, than to see that project being brought to fruition. And then with our graphite business in Finland, uh, I guess the COVID-19 situation has brought about within Europe and the conversation in Europe, uh, specifically around batteries and battery manufacturing capability and uh, renewed focus on supply chain length. So both having short supply chains and having strategic cap capability in Europe to be able to manufacture the batteries that Europe needs, whether or not they're going into electric vehicles, uh, going into the grid or whatever, uh, and the ongoing issue of climate change and how all these, uh, how this activity or this capability can work towards solving the climate change issue. Um, Fenniscandian resources is in very nicely positioned there. So it would be good to, again to see uh, the strategic imperative um, driving authorities' minds to understand that you need to have, you need to be permitting uh, mining projects in a timely fashion because when you finally decide that you need the material, often or not, the mine isn't permitted to be able to produce it. So there needs to be this active thought that, you know, if we're talking about these big initiatives around, um, solving climate change, uh, a transition to a green economy, you need to be per permitting uh, mining developments that are going to provide the metals that are going to help you um, win the day. And then with uh, Vardar, I mean, in the last few weeks, we've been able to put out a uh, couple of announcements regarding a gold target that we have on the Mitrovica license there. You know, it's not a bad time to be. Uh, exploring for gold and uh, that, you know, we're not producing gold. Uh, the gold companies that are producing gold are doing very well with gold prices over 
dollars an ounce. Um, but the, the, the licenses we have in Kosovo are showing signs for porphyry style mineralization and, and lots of uh, metal in the exploration that we've done today. And so I'm really uh, enthusiastic about, you know, the fact that we have a foot in the Tethian belt. You know, when I went to PDAC in early March before the world really, really changed, um, the Mining Journal ran a headline on the Monday morning saying, if you're going to be anywhere at the moment, be in the Tethian belt. So thank God for that. We're in the Tethian belt. And, uh, you know, the, the Vardar team, um, supported locally by um, other geologists doing the cracking job. So it would be great to see us be able to bring a project in Kosovo. You know, young country, uh, been around since 2008, European Union working with Kosovo and Serbia to try and broker a deal between the two countries. Um, so there's clearly some politics there which need to be sorted out, but that's not affecting us. But it would be good to be there developing a mining project in Kosovo for a country that needs economic activity. So, yeah, quite, quite hopeful that that would be somewhere where we can really start to, uh, to work in, in a more active way over the coming years. Yeah. Um, and what does mining mean to you? What, why do you enjoy mining? I'm a sucker for a challenge, I think. <laughs> uh, if I had any sense, I wouldn't be in the mining industry. Uh, I'm not sure that's a good advert for me. Um, I, it's, it's, you meet some great characters. Uh, I remember working on a blasting crew in 1987 on a coking coal mine in northwest British Columbia in the winter. I won't tell you what the... The blasting engineer called me at the time, but you know, I was aware behind the years. I just left school. I was just turned 18 and, uh, you meet all sorts of characters, you know, uh, in the coal industry in this UK, in the UK, I met some outstanding site managers, uh, a chap called Jackie Newton, um, in the Northeast who, you know, taught me a thing or two. And, uh, you get the opportunity to, uh, make a real difference. I think that's why I'm in the mining industry. You do get the opportunity. And that's what, again, why I'm not giving up on our Calac project is, you know, I do believe in fair resolution. If you put the work in and it wasn't me that did all the work, it was a, a, a strong Swedish technical team um, that prepared our application in Sweden. Um, but I believe if you do the work in this industry, you should get your fair results, uh, fair rewards. And uh, I, I love a challenge. Mm. I love working with people. And, um, and that's often not in my career where I've had the greatest success, where I've been able to work with people, um, both in the company and then the wider stakeholder group, uh, and achieve something together. So, you know, there's nobody that achieves anything in this game on their own. It's impossible to do that. So um, I, I enjoy working with the characters that you find in this sector yeah uh, and last question um obviously you're a subscriber to the podcast if there was one guest that you wouldn't mind uh, listening to um or me interviewing on the podcast um who would who would you like to see being a guest on here um 
that would have to be uh, the Minister for Business and Innovation for the Government of Sweden. <laughs> right. Ibrahim Bailan. Right, okay. Well, what also I could do, I could definitely send him a copy of this recording um, yeah. and also try and get him on here as well. So, uh, yeah. You might well, he, was the chap, he was the chap that stood up on a platform in Toronto, saving his biggest welcome for investors and then telling me that I was specifically uh, welcome to doing business in Sweden. And I had to write to him recently and said to him, to, I wrote to him and said, it's impossible for me to do business in Sweden because you won't give me a permit for our Calic project. So he would be the man. Yeah. On okay. the spot. Yeah, I certainly will do. All right, Kurt, really appreciate your time um, in doing this uh, podcast. And if our audience wants to uh, reach out to you, if they've got any questions on some of the um, topics that you've discussed or wants to find out more about Beowulf, how can they uh, go about doing that? And are you on any social media? So we've got the website, which is www.beowulfmining.com. Um, there is a contact form on the website uh, so they can get in touch with the company through that or info at beowulfmining.com. And we also have a Facebook page in Sweden. So they can find us there. Yeah. Okay. No worries. And if you've got any questions, I can also pass them on to Kurt as well. Uh, my email address is rob at mining-international.org. Really appreciate your time, Kurt. Um, hope the audience has uh, learned, some, uh, learned some things there. And I think one of the... I think one of the key takeaways that I've got from this is, is persistence um, and how persistent you've actually been in working some of these difficult jurisdictions in terms of just the, the permitting um, and having that never give up attitude. And I think that's really important in the mining industry, no matter what, I suppose, what, what you're doing um, and anything in life. Um, I think persistence is a, a key to a number of our challenges that we have and not giving up and sometimes you could be that close you don't know how close you are for that application being uh, accepted um, you could be that close and if you give up you're never never going to know so um, yeah uh, I think that's one definitely key way I've taken away from this so um, yeah really appreciate your time again hope the audience uh, um, got something from this and until next time happy mining Thanks for listening to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. If there are any topics you want discussed or questions you want to ask any guests, then you can email us at rob at mining-international.org or you can follow Rob and Mining International on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter and YouTube for more content and to have your questions answered. Until next time, happy mining.